You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 24 of the Napoleon 101 podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. With me, as always, my most esteemed co-host, the Honourable Sir J. David Markham. How are you, sir? I'm very fine, Cameron. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. And uh, explain to the audience the uh, somewhat... A sad milestone that 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 you uh, moved through in the last week. Oh well, uh, I guess I guess you're you're referring to the fact that uh, after five years uh, teaching at this uh, boarding high school where I've been, uh, that I've decided not to uh, return uh, because it's two hours a day of driving, and and I can spend that that time. Uh, uh, looking for stuff on eBay, much much more amusingly, uh, or, or or whatever. So so I'm 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 still kind of looking around and seeing what I might be able to come up with for work, uh, uh, and 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 that'll be fine if I find something. If I don't, then I'll retire to my writing and podcasting. And and I understand that uh, that you're going to start paying me a salary here just any day now. Uh, which will allow me to live in the in the lifestyle to which I would love to become accustomed. Which is basically just spending it all on eBay and trying to hide, that's it, right. hide it from Barbara. <laughs> well, that's more and more difficult to do. She's on to all of my tricks now. But <laughs> but uh, no, it's uh, it's it's always bittersweet. I had some very fine students and good and good colleagues, and and uh, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, and and uh, but it's time to 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 move on and and see if if my uh, fate has some other teaching in store or or simply writing and and uh, doing the other kind of things that I like and and so uh, there we are. But the one the one good thing for those of you who uh, check out our our blog and 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 go to the armchair uh, uh, general and some of the other places uh, where there are discussion groups and of course the the forum on the million series which is one of my favorites probably probably is my favorite uh, uh, you you may know that I I relatively seldom have a chance to get involved in those because I'm so busy but if I in fact end up retiring then I'll have all sorts of time to to hold forth at, at some length. Uh, on these uh, various sites. Well, I'm sure that uh, for the students of the school that you're with, it was sad to lose you. I think you were uh, sort of the model of the uh, history teacher that we would all love to have had as in our youth. But uh, on behalf of your 25,000 students who listen on this show, I, I can say that we, we would uh, relish the opportunity to hear more from you on a monthly basis. Uh, well, I think there's uh, 25,000 people out there who are thinking Markham is so long-winded, we really don't want to hear any more of him. It's, uh, I'm not sure. But I, I, feel, I, I feel really good about one thing. Uh, I, I really 
believe with all my heart that, that I was good for quite a few students over the years that I've that I've taught both both uh, there at, at Ording and, and, and at other schools over the years and also with, at university and community colleges where I've also taught and and the, the the one thing that I judge myself by really and the only thing when you get down to it I mean I've won teaching awards and I've had good friends and I've had all these things but but the one thing that I really care about is is whether or not I can in good conscience tell myself that the students have have gained from their experience with me and and, and I believe they have and I and I appreciate your very kind comments and uh, many of them were looking forward next year to taking advanced placement European history with me and and uh, I told them, well, now they'll get to hear something about European history beyond just Napoleon, so they may be better off. <laughs> so, uh, actually, speaking of you having more time, do you realize that uh, this is the third episode we've actually produced this month? <laughs> that's a record for us. We've done three well, episodes that, in a month. That's, a, that's absolutely amazing, particularly since I had a, a week in Israel uh, a few weeks ago, and... And I have uh, this this coming Friday, and today is Wednesday. This coming Friday, I'm going to to uh, Poland for a conference, and then a week's vacation in, in Eastern Germany, uh, Berlin and Dresden and Leipzig and Erfurt and a few places like that. So, so uh, uh, we have managed to uh, to to get a number of episodes in. Uh, but I will be gone, uh, dear listeners, for two weeks or so, and then maybe a week to recover. So it might be three weeks before you you hear from us again. We'll see. Well, uh, let's if we don't if we don't get into today's episode, then it might actually be July by the time we finish it. Knowing well, they've already you know, all twenty thousand five hundred of those folks have already turned off their machines and said, you know, what is this babble all about? You know, let's find something else. It's just like. You know the uh, uh, the war of the worlds. You know people people miss the the long intro that explained what the radio broadcast was. Well, they're wishing they missed this long intro. Who would have believed in the early years of the 21st century that J. David Markham and Cameron Riley could prattle on for so long about a guy who's oh been goodness. dead for 200 years? Um, <laughs> oh, that's very good, Cameron. I, our listeners uh, will, I'm sure, appreciated that one. We left Napoleon at the end of episode 23, getting ready with his armies to cross the Neiman River and enter into Mother Russia. And uh, I guess that's where we should start today. Uh, on June 24th, like uh, almost this week, week just passed, but in 1812, so uh, almost what is that, 195 years ago, Napoleon and his Grand Armée, as we said last week, made up of somewhere between five to 700,000 soldiers, depending on whose numbers you uh, take, crossed the Neiman River, finally, into Russia. Well, they, they crossed the Neiman, and, and, and I usually say it's just a little under 600,000, as far as I can tell. Uh, it's very, very interesting uh, a lot of folks sort of envision that this is a French army. Of course, it's it's not a French army. There's 20 different countries, uh, a whole bunch of different languages. Although, as I think I mentioned last time, the the officer corps uh, tended to speak French, and so 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 that was uh, was 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 certainly used 
successful. Uh, and and uh, he's got uh, some of his uh, really, really good marshals along, people like Davu and, 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 and Murat and, and, and in, in his own way, uh, um, Marshal Ney. Uh, not everybody is, is at this, this level, of course. Uh, some of the, the uh, foreign commanders that he has with him uh, Schwarzenberg, for example, you know they, they they were important to have along. They 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 weren't necessarily the brightest lights in the in 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 the chandelier, though. Uh, there was another uh, thing or two that that I I wanted to mention, and, and I may have mentioned it last time. Uh, Napoleon had had really planned this pretty well, uh, although we'll see that that he, he maybe he couldn't see the forest for the trees I'm not quite sure but for example in addition to moving a lot of soldiers up toward the front well in advance of of the actual invasion itself he also moved a tremendous amount of supply uh, material food medical equipment ammunition gunpowder cannon uh, uniforms you name it he had everything you would need for a nice summer campaign in Russia, which, of course, is what this was going to be. He had no idea, and I'll, I'll, I will undoubtedly repeat myself as we go along here. He had no idea, no intention, no expectation whatsoever that this was going to be the kind of campaign that it became. He certainly never imagined in a million years, that he would end up in Moscow uh, going into the winter of, of, uh, of 12. But not to get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, he was missing one thing, and, and, and this would prove to be critical in 1812. It would prove to be even more critical in 1813 and 1814. He had lots and lots of men. It's pretty easy to conscript men. You may not get the greatest men you want. You may be getting some awfully young fellows, and you may be getting people whose motivation is is, is questionable, particularly if they're from countries other than France. But you, there's, there's plenty of men to be had. Not so, however, with horses. The, the years of warfare had taken their toll on the number of horses that were available. And... You know, for for quite some time, the, the 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 horse problem had been substantial. I mean, Napoleon had buyers out there every place he could find that had a horse for sale. He was out there buying it for his Grand Armée, uh, but there were no spare horses. There were there were there was no surplus. I mean, there was enough uh, to to have a campaign, and he certainly had cavalry. He certainly had horses pulling caissons and pulling artillery and so on. But if he had enough, he barely had enough. Uh, and as we'll, as we'll find out later on, that wasn't necessarily uh, going to be uh, enough. At any rate, uh, Napoleon decides he's going to, to move on Russia before Russia moves on him. It, it's one of these things that seemed like a good idea at the time. It's perfectly logical. Uh, it's, it's morally defensible. People say, wow, there's this, you know, Napoleon's great ego has, uh, has created this campaign. 
caused all this uh, problem. Uh, but no, that's uh, that's not uh, the way it was uh, at all. The, the fact of the matter was that as far as Napoleon could tell, and I think he was right, he didn't have much choice. He could hardly simply say, okay, we'll, we'll you know, give you part of, of the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. Uh, fine, you don't really want to be a participant in the Continental System. Oh, that's no problem. Nor could he ignore the fact that, given the intractability of those two issues, it was clear that either Napoleon was going to attack Russia, or if he chose not to, Russia was going to attack Napoleonic forces in the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. And he wasn't going to give, and he dared not give Tsar Alexander the advantage of, number one, being on the offensive. And frankly, I think being on the offensive is, is almost always better than being on the defensive. Although this campaign turns out to, to, to belie that. And number two, uh, to be fighting <clears throat> on somebody else's soil. Napoleon was convinced that with his e enormous army, which, by the way, was about one-third French, uh, uh, two-thirds two uh, other, other nations, uh, he really, really thought that this was going to be all that it took. And so, as you say, on the 24th of June of 1812, uh, this enormous army begins to move across the Neiman River onto Russian soil. And if you were a bird flying overhead, you could not help but to be impressed. Imagine what it must have looked like. From the air. That's one nice thing is about thing about movies. You know, you you get all these beautiful aerial shots that that the the actual people on these campaigns didn't hardly ever really have. Uh, but imagine what it would be a bird's eye view. You know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers in magnificent uh, uniforms marching across the river falling into formation, beginning to march down the roads of Russia. And by the way, I don't know if you could hear it in the background, uh, but somebody is setting off firecrackers out behind us because we're getting up you know, relatively close to the 4th of July, the American uh, Independence Day, and, and some early uh, uh, celebrators are out there giving me very good, good uh, backdrop uh, for, for what we're talking about. Uh, at any rate... I told you also last time, you've got the, the first Western Army uh, commanded by de Tolly, second Western Army commanded by Bagration, and the third Western Army uh, by uh, Tormazov, uh, which is really not going to be a very big factor, at least not, not for now. So here comes the Grand Army, and the whole idea that Napoleon had was, now that I'm invading Russia, Alexander has to put up resistance. He cannot simply allow me to walk unmolested into his country. I will defeat him as I have defeated everybody else. And then we'll sit down, work out a deal, and things will be back to normal. Uh, but of course, we all know it didn't work out that way. The Russians refused to give significant battle. There were skirmish 
there were times when the two armies managed to 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 fight each other. The Grand Army won all of those and continued to move forward. The Russian army lost all of those and continued to move backwards. But it wasn't enough. Those skirmishes are wonderful and 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 and, and you certainly want to win them, not lose them. Uh, but the fact is that he couldn't force a large battle. And he began immediately, I mean the first day, he begins to discover that what on paper, and maybe from that bird's eye view, looks so impressive, can be a very, very big problem. For example, the roads, and indeed the terrain of Russia, were not designed to accommodate 600,000 people trying to march. And remember, you've got 600,000 soldiers. You've got any number of hangers-on. You've got all the artillery. You've got all of these, these wagons full of supplies, full of ammunition, full of cannonballs, you name it. They're all moving, and they're moving at a snail's pace. And the, the, the roads are, are impassable, not because of mud or something, but because there's so many people jammed onto them. Uh, Napoleon and his subordinates are trying to send messages back and forth, and the couriers simply cannot get through. So communication slows to a snail's pace. Soldiers in the front of this formation, if you want to call that, literally are on the verge of starvation because the supplies that are in the rear cannot get forward to them. And Russia, of course, the Russian army, is doing the old scorched earth policy. There's, there's not going to be very much opportunity for foraging uh, on, on the part of the, the Grand Armée. Uh, and the weather turns bad. And I want to really make comment on the weather. Everybody knows how lousy the weather was on the way out. The, the defeat of Napoleon by General Winter is pretty much classic to understanding Napoleonic legend. But interestingly enough, by some measures, the weather going in may have been certainly there were a lot more soldiers jammed together that needed supply and the heat became intolerable and soldiers literally died from exhaustion thirst heat stroke whatever you might call it and the horses the horses were not prepared for a campaign like this and horses began to die. And there were no spare horses. So if horses die, something doesn't get pulled. Some of the supplies don't get to move forward. Somebody doesn't get to ride a horse. Something happens. So as a result of the, the loss of just a few at first and, and a continually mounting number of horses, all of the problems that Napoleon's army had to 
start with ended up becoming worse and worse and worse. And as a result, you began to lose opportunities. General Vitoli had allowed himself to become overextended, exposed to the French uh, movement forward. And as a result, there could have been a significant force, or a, excuse me, a significant battle between the, 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 the Grand Armée and General de Tolly's forces. But the, the commander of, of, of the, the, the units that were key to this, uh, Prince Eugène, uh, Napoleon's stepson, who was also Prince of Bavaria, uh, couldn't get his soldiers into position fast enough because of the cl- clogged road. And as a result, Tolly, who was certainly no fool, uh, leaves. And, and, and as a result, there's no more opportunity. Uh, the, uh, th- there are other uh, opportunities. Uh, Jerome, for example, uh, had an opportunity to do some serious damage to the army controlled by, by Gratione. And again, he was unable to move into position fast enough to take advantage of his strategic position and his overwhelming numbers. Uh, and so as a result, the Russians move further and further back into uh, Russia. And on June 28th, Napoleon enters the town of Vilna. And I'll pause for a breath because I suspect you'd like to jump in. <laughs> yes. I actually had my microphone on mute there while I was uh, scrabbling through books. Um, one of the, there's a couple of interesting things that you bring up there. First of all, the, the subject of the retreat has always fascinated me. I remember for years I was wondering whether or not this was a deliberate policy on behalf of Alexander and, and his Russian generals to draw the, the Napoleon's forces further and further into Mother Russia, or if they were purely just running away, if it, if it was tactical or if it was strategic. And, and, and so the, the two big questions for me have always been, what was in the minds of the Russians? And then the other part is, what was in the minds of Napoleon? Um, a couple of the books that um, I've been using for prep for today, uh, one, of, one of which is uh, Calling Cause with Napoleon in Russia, Colin Kors, uh memoirs of the period. And he talks about the fact that Napoleon was convinced that the battle was going to be over in a month, that he was going to fight one battle with the Russians, defeat them, and then Alexander would sue for peace, and they'd all be able to go back home again. It would all be over. And sure, that's ex- that, that's exactly what he thought, and and by traditional expectations of war, that's what was very reasonable to think. Cullencore writes, "It was truly heartbreaking for him to have to give up all hope of a great battle before Vilna. He flattered himself that the Prince of Ekmal would be more fortunate in his movements against Bagration, and that the corps which would march on the Dwina would get into touch with the left flank of the Russians." 
his first question to any officer coming to headquarters from the various Army Corps was, how many prisoners have been taken? He was anxious for trophies so as to encourage the Poles, and no one sent him any. And he, he talks about how Napoleon just, you know, couldn't understand why they weren't standing and fighting. And then in um, uh, Adam Zamoyski's book, uh, Moscow 1812, which we spoke about during the last episode, he says... Uh, one thing that did seem to make a profound impression on Napoleon was one of the Tsar's statements as reported by Caulincourt. If fate decides against me on the field of battle, Alexander had said, I would rather retreat as far as Kamchatka than give away provinces and sign in my capital any treaty which would only be a truce. The Frenchman is brave, but long privations and a bad climate tire him and discourage him. Our climate, our winter, will fight for us. Prodigious victories are only achieved where the emperor is, and he cannot be everywhere or spend years away from Paris. Alexander had said that he was well aware of Napoleon's ability to win battles and would therefore avoid fighting the French where they, uh, where they were under his command. He had also referred to the guerrilla in Spain and said that the whole Russian nation would resist an invader. But on reflection, Napoleon dismissed all this as bravado. He believed Alexander was too weak a character to carry out such a plan and that Russian society would not accept such sacrifices. He reasoned that the nobles would not want to see their hands ravaged for the sake uh, their lands, sorry, ravaged for the sake of Alexander's honor, while the serfs would as likely revolt against their nobles and their Tsar as fight to the last man for a system of slavery. So it seems that according to Zamoyski's research that Caulincourt gave Napoleon fair warning of what Alexander's thoughts on uh, retreat as deliberate strategy were, were, but Napoleon didn't believe Alexander was capable of that or that the Russian people would allow him to get away with it for very long. Well, that's true. Uh, and and I, I read some of that, that quote from Alexander, uh, which was in Caulincourt uh, uh, on the last episode as well. Uh, Napoleon... You know, he, he didn't listen, but but he didn't listen because he had a very logical, reasonable battle plan or campaign plan. It was perfectly reasonable to assume that even if Tsar Alexander thought he would draw Napoleon in some, that for whatever reason, pressure from the peasantry, pressure from his family, pressure from his nobles, his own ego, whatever the, the source of pressure or some combination of all of those, somewhere along the line, the Russians would have to stand and fight. And, and he was correct. But he was correct far later in the campaign than he ever had imagined possible. I mean, he gets all the way to Vilna, and, you know, he's, he's winning. He's marching forward. The enemy is retreating. Excuse me, that's, that's normally a sign of, of, of the person moving forward is winning. The person retreating is losing. There have been some uh, smaller battles, some skirmishes, some, some conflicts, and, and the Grand Armée has, has, has come out on top on all of those. He now goes to uh, Vilna, and and uh, he has to make some decisions. And unfortunately, 
he doesn't necessarily make uh, uh, some good uh, decisions. On the, on the way to Vilna, uh, Ration, the, the Davu and, 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 and Eugene had an opportunity to, to uh, go after Bagration uh, successfully. Uh, Davu, to his credit, got into pretty good position. But Eugene had taken two days at Poloni, uh, and by the time he uh, got into where he was supposed to be, the moment had passed, and Jerome also uh, had not moved adequately. And, and, and as a result, once again, Bagration uh, has escaped, and now uh, Napoleon moves into Vilna. Now, this is really a very, very important position in the campaign and it's really early you know we're we're not that far far in campaign we're we're what two weeks into it he he came in on on the 24th no excuse me we're four days into it okay uh and he sits there for whatever reason he really thought that one of two things would happen Either the Russian forces, seeing that Napoleon was sitting there in Vilna, would move forward to give combat. Or that word would have gotten back to Alexander, listen, Tsar, we've got this jaggernaut coming down the road. He swept us aside. We've managed to avoid losing most of our army. But somewhere along the line, he's going to catch up to us. And then it's going to hit the fan, so why don't you negotiate some kind of a settlement? You know, uh, we thought maybe he wouldn't do all this, but he did, so the jig's up and let's move forward. But that didn't happen. Napoleon sits in this little town of Vilna for 18 days. Now, there's absolutely no reason for him to sit there that long. All right, fine. Two or three days, consolidate things, you know, get your supplies sorted out, make sure the people who are, who are really hungry in the front finally get their food, and so on. Uh, but it doesn't take 18 days to do that. But he did have a number of possibilities. Uh, there are some people in, 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 in his on his staff, and some people today look back and say, maybe he should have just stayed there for the winter and and then move forward the following spring he could have really consolidated his position gotten his supply things figured out now who what the problems were with having such a big army he could have dealt with that he could have fortified the town and and uh, and he also could have you know sent negotiating teams out and seen if anything would happen and from Vilna he had a choice in which direction to go he could have gone to St. Petersburg, which was the real capital where the Tsar was, or, of course, to Moscow, which was the, 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 the holy city of Moscow. Well, he wasn't going to stay in Vilna, but he stayed too long. He stayed 18 days. That wasn't called for, it wasn't planned for, and it didn't do him uh, any good. Uh, the you know A lot of his soldiers, by the way, a lot of his officers really suggested that he should stay there. Uh, the French army was exhausted uh, as a result of the hot weather. Uh, and 
There was you know, all sorts of, uh, of, of problems. Uh, Count Dunn, who was one of his top uh, aides, uh, really did his best to, con- to convince Napoleon to, to consolidate, uh, get more reinforcements and so on. Uh, but Napoleon decided, and I, and I think rightfully, uh, that, uh, that, that he had to keep going. Uh, and he goes on to, to uh, Vitebsk. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Vitebsk, uh, which is uh, uh, a little bit further down the road and uh, on his northern or left flank. And uh, he finds that uh, de Tolly uh, is in the vicinity, uh, and Napoleon moves forward thinking that he is going to, to uh, pounce on de Tolly and destroy that portion of the Russian army. And he's right there. It's, it's all set up. He could do it. And then he stops. And he waits. He waits a full day presumably waiting for reinforcements whatever the reason and i and i don't really understand the reason that Tolly, you know gets out of there in a hurry uh he takes the, the napoleon takes the town uh but it's it's a it's a small victory again he kills a few russians he takes the town he's moved forward in uh, uh but but now uh, we're, 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 we're talking uh, about uh, August. The, the summer is at its hottest. He's been on the road for a while. His army is exhausted. And there's a possibility that he will stay there. And again, a lot of his staff say, well, now it's August. We're not that far from winter. Uh, let's stay here. For all the reasons that we could have stayed at Vilna. Let's stay here and see what we can do. Uh, and by staying here, you know, you, you, you control an awful lot of Russian territory at this point. Maybe Alexander uh, will, uh, will sue for peace. But Napoleon, again, after another long delay, a couple weeks or so, uh, moves further into Russia he moves on toward, on August 13th, he, he moves on down the road to Smolensk. I have a couple of uh, quotes around that period, just uh, backing up some of the things that you were saying. Uh, at one stage, Napoleon, when he's trying to figure out where he should go, whether it's to St. Petersburg or Moscow, he says, If I go to St. Petersburg, I take Russia by the head. If I march on Kiev, I take it by the feet. But if I go to Moscow, I shall strike it in the heart. I like that. And then um, yes. talking about when he's in Vitebsk, he says how when, when he was being advised by some of his uh, marshals that he should take up winter quarters, he says, how can I go into winter quarters in July? The question posed in such sarcastic terms could only be answered in the negative. He himself had no ambition to become another Wellington. It wasn't in his temperament to fight defensive battles. The same went for the French. Our troops are glad to advance. A war of invasion is something they like. But a prolonged and stationary defence is alien to the French genius. To halt behind rivers, to remain encamped inside huts, to manoeuvre every day only to be in the same place still. It is thus that we are wont to wage war. 
Once the winter comes, you will see them fill with blocks of ice and disappear beneath the snow, he says of the Davina and Dnieper rivers. And he goes on to say, uh, Why stop in Vitebsk for eight months when 20 days would suffice to reach the goal? Let us forestall winter and further reflections. We must strike promptly for fear of compromising everything. We must be in Moscow in one month or risk never entering it at all. So he wasn't uh, wasn't the sort of guy who was just going to sit around and wait for eight months. Well, and and he's he's not he's not necessarily unreasonable in that approach. I mean, the the traditional feeling about any army is that an idle army becomes fat and lazy, ineffective. Uh, desertion rates go up. Uh, the longer he stays out of Paris, the more possibilities there are of intrigues back there. And let's let's remember uh, that that's always sort of in the background. Napoleon and his army is now sitting out here in in, in Western Russia. Uh, what's going on back in Paris? You know, what's going on back in Vienna? Uh, back in Berlin, you know, what kind of political things are going on? Napoleon is not just a general. He's not just out here leading an army. He's also trying to manage an empire, uh, and, 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 and he's needed. So the idea of sitting around for a full year, which is going to make him look weak, possibly, certainly to the Russians, and possibly to people back, back in his capital and in the other capitals of Europe, uh, you know, who's to say how how that will all play out so napoleon really doesn't want to sit around in in uh in in russia uh forever for for any number of of really pretty good reasons uh not the least of which of course is that he continues to be convinced that he's going to get this one big battle that'll solve it and by the way you know we we don't want to lose sight of 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 the fact that He's had two or three opportunities for that big battle against Itoli and then Bagratio. And his subordinates were unable to get into position and take advantage of the opportunities that they had. Had either one of, of those two Russian generals, Itoli or Bagratio, been decisively defeated in this preliminary part of the campaign, the whole history of 1812 and indeed of the rest of the Napoleonic uh, epoch uh, might be very different. It might very well be that if one of those two Western armies had been crushed and, and put out of action completely, that Alexander, his generals, his nobles, his family, somebody might have said, okay, it's one thing to keep retreating when you've got, you know, two major uh, Western armies and a third one being organized. And now we've lost one of them, uh, and and now we need to sue for peace. So Napoleon's been so close to just exactly what he wants that it is understandable that it that it might have seemed to him that he wasn't that far away from from forcing the battle that he so desperately wanted. So he sits there uh, for a couple more weeks, and again, two weeks. Did he need two weeks? Would a week have been sufficient? Did he earlier need 18 days? 
would seven days have been sufficient? How long does he wait? There's a lot of indecision, a lot of, of, of delay, and it's really, really uh, not looking good. But he moves down the road, and he's moving now towards Smolensk. And again, opportunity appears to knock. The bad news is that Toli and, and uh, Bagration have finally got their two armies together. So now Napoleon no longer has a divide and conquer with those two armies. The good news is twofold. One, those two generals don't really get along all that well, so we'll see just how well this joint command of this one now big army works out. Uh, and and uh, uh, number two, you know, that, the, the, the bad news is, is that uh, they now have to face an overwhelming uh, French uh, army. So Napoleon's got a, a really good opportunity uh, to, to defeat them. And so he, he moves right in front of Smolensk. Okay? And he, he, he has a chance to, to, to take them. But it's August 15th. It's his birthday. He decides to have a, a, a day a day off from war. I don't understand that. I'll go to my grave not understanding that. He's got just what he wants right there. But he takes the day off. He moves people into position. He gets prepared. Well, <laughs> a lot of times people get birthday presents. He gave a birthday present. The Russians get out of the suburbs for the most part, go into Smolensk, begin to fortify it, begin to get set up to defend the city. Still, the good news is they are apparently going to stay and, and, and fight. And admittedly, now they have fortified city positions. It's going to be an urban warfare and, and, and ask our young men and women in, 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 in Iraq uh, and, and, and to a lesser extent in Afghanistan uh, just how, how much fun urban warfare can be. Uh, it's it's just awful uh, to to have to do, but but still, Napoleon's going to get his big fighting, and for a couple of days uh, in the suburbs he does, uh, and uh, they fight for a couple of days, the 16th and the 17th, and then on the 18th, both armies are are quite frankly rather tired. I think that exhausted might be a better word, and so there is a a, a bit of a of, of a lull, uh, and during that period, on that day, Bagration's army leaves. Now, this is absolutely amazing. You know, you've got the United Army, these two Russian armies united, in a really good position to defend against Napoleon's onslaught. Although I think Napoleon would have won because the numbers were just too much in his favor. Uh, and then half of the Russian defense force takes off. And Napoleon lets them go. It reminds me, of course, to jump ahead a little bit of, of the Prussians after Linie, you know? 
they retreat, and Napoleon lets them go. So Bagration uh, is 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 off on his own, and uh, not very much of anything happens. But now he has a huge numerical superiority over de Tolay. And even though de Tolay has dug into the city, there's no way that his forces are going to be a match for uh, the, the uh, Grand Armée. Uh, but Napoleon doesn't move against them either. And again, I honestly do not understand why. So at the end of the day, Napoleon allows the Russians to withdraw for whatever reasons. The city has been pretty much sacked by the Russians. There's not a lot in the way of supplies there. Although, to be honest, Napoleon has lots of supplies. And a big chunk of it's burned. Uh, one of the myths that we'll talk about again about Moscow is, is the French burned the city. Well, of course, it was the Russians. Uh, and the Russians also burned uh, Smolensk on their way out of town for the obvious reason. They do not want Napoleon to have any kind of accommodations for his men. They understand, particularly now, we're, we're looking in late August, uh, they understand, or mid to late August, that, that, that Napoleon may very well want to stay and then start again in the spring. And they want to make that decision as difficult as possible. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and they do. So... Uh, Napoleon, by the way, uh, there's another battle going on. Uh, Mar- Marshal uh, Oudinot and General Sancier uh, do uh, defeat uh, General uh, uh, Wittgenstein at the First Battle of Polusk uh, on the 17th and 18th. And, and that victory, which isn't big enough to be the one great victory that Napoleon wanted, and for no other reason, because Napoleon wasn't commanding the troops. Uh, but that that gives Napoleon reason to believe that that they're going to to be successful, and that the Russians, in fact, will be uh, willing uh, to uh, to fight. Nevertheless, here he sits in Smolensk, and he really has to think about what he's going to do. Okay? He still has good lines of communication with France. His supply lines are, are, are not particularly overextended. Uh, he, he could have stayed there in Smolensk, uh, pointing out to the rest of the world that he now controlled much of Russia, uh, that he had uh, defeated one army and chased uh, two other armies away. Uh, he could declare Poland to be an independent nation. You know, the Grand Duchy was not totally independent. He could declare Poland independent, which would be to pretty much give the bird to uh, uh, to Tsar to, uh, Alexander, uh, make him uh, an even greater Polish hero than he already was, uh, and basically say, listen, you know, uh, Alexander, if you don't like me sitting here, 
come and try to do something about it. Uh, or if Small Lentz turns out not to be good, he could have gone back not all, all that many miles to uh, Vitebsk, which was very, very secure, much shorter lines of communication. Uh, troops were already there. Lots of supplies were already there. Uh, and, uh, you know, he would have been fine. But, of course, all the things he could do over the winter, the Russians could do as well. And, and that leaves Napoleon with a real dilemma. He's not been able to force the battle that he wants. He's beginning to run out of time. You know, we, most of us in, in, in the world don't think of mid to late August as, as, as being dangerously close to a horrible winter. Uh, but in, but in, 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 in Russia, uh, it was. Uh, Napoleon is also still worried about just how long can he stay away from Paris. He really had not planned on being gone all that long. Uh, so he decides he really can't just <coughs> sit in Smolensk or withdraw to Vitebsk or, or anything else. He must move forward. My turn? My turn? That was your cue. <laughs> I thought it was, but I had my microphone on mute again, so you can't hear my books getting thrown about the room. Um, yeah, look, uh, uh, the interesting thing here is it's obviously not just uh, Napoleon that's uh, suffering from indecision and a uh, little bit of disarray here. The Russians are all over the place. I mean, you talked about Bagration and Detolet not getting along, but... Um, uh, when you when you read about the other side of the camp here, they were just as <laughs> chaotic uh, as as kind of Napoleon's march was. The retreat, far from being a coldly calculated strategic retreat, was um, was uh, the complete opposite. I've got some great quotes here. Um, Czar Alexander's sister Catherine. Later said, the greatest regret in my life is not having been a man in 1812. Uh, when you read about the, the politics between her and Alexander, she uh, obviously uh, was a fairly strong lady and had a, a lot to say on uh, you know, how Alexander should stand up to Napoleon and how it should be fought. But as um, uh, Zamoyski says... Alexander knew that as the Russian armies fell back, allowing the French invaders to strike into the very heartlands of the empire, he would be blamed, and he could not forget what had happened to his father and grandfather. So he was trying to galvanise Russia and rally it to his cause, and one of the ways that he did that was get the propaganda machine into uh, effect inside of Russia. He got the Orthodox Church, which, interestingly enough, we, we, I tend to think of Russia as being uh, Orthodox Christian, but um, they weren't, it wasn't so much the case. Uh, at the time, according to the book I've got here, the population of Russia consisted of one and a half million units, 1.3 million Catholics, 100,000 Jews, 60,000 old believers, 30,000 Tatar Muslims and 3,000 Karayim Jews and against only 80,000 Russian Orthodox. 
But nonetheless, uh, Alexander gets the Orthodox Church into play. He wrote to bishops urging them to mobilise their clergy into action against the common threat of the alien and godless army of the 20 tongues, as the multinational <laughs> Grand Armée was sometimes referred to. The Synod issued its own proclamation calling on everyone to take up arms in defence of faith and fatherland against the godless intruders who had offended the Almighty by overthrowing the throne and the altar in France. It called on priests up and down the country to arm simple souls with the correct sentiments. Um, at Alexander's request, Augustine, vicar of Moscow, wrote a special prayer in which the faithful could beg God to defend Russia, inspire devotion to the Tsar, and imbue him with all the wisdom and courage required to give him victory, quoting the examples of Moses and Gideon, David and Goliath. And then at the same time, there was a uh, propaganda campaign happening in Moscow, there's a, uh, a lady by the name, uh, a resident of Moscow, Maria Apolonovna Volkova, wrote to her friend Vavara Ivanova Lanskaya that she had always been of the opinion that one should not concern oneself too much with the future, but her philosophy did not stand up to the test when the fatal news broke. Peace has abandoned our lovely city, she wrote on the 3rd of the July. This is after they'd received news that Napoleon had crossed the Neman. A couple of days earlier, a German inhabitant of Moscow was nearly stoned to death by the mob who thought he was French. A week later, Maria Apolonovna took up the pen once more. Five days ago, they were saying that Osterman had won a great victory. This turned out to be a fabrication, she wrote. This morning, news reached us of a brilliant victory won by Wittgenstein. This news comes from a reliable source, and Count Rostopchin <laughs> is confirming it, but nobody dares to believe it. Count Rostopchin was the mayor or the governor, I think, of Moscow. And we'll obviously hear about him a little bit more when Napoleon gets to Moscow. Says what, Nepal, what Alexander had to do was convert these fears and this anger into action, and so he, you know, he was fighting his own political battles, knowing that uh, the further Napoleon's forces got into Russia, the worse it was going to look for him. And at one stage, he, uh, you know, thinks about or is forced really to ride out to the army himself again, uh, pointing out the big difference in these days between. Napoleon and all of the other monarchs of England and Europe is that he was in the front lines. Uh, Tsar Alexander wasn't on the front lines. Uh, the King of England wasn't on the front lines. The Kings of Austria and Prussia, the Emperor of Austria and Prussia, weren't on the front lines. It was they, they weren't. They, they weren't uh, this time. Now at Austerlitz, uh, you had the the the, the three emperors uh, on. Uh, on site, so so there was at least That's true. some. That's true. There was at least a little bit of this, but yeah, imagine imagine modern day leaders, uh, whoever they are, regardless of your political persuasion. Imagine George Bush or or before him Bill Clinton, uh, actually being out, uh, you know, on the front line. Uh, it's just uh, it's it's rather hard to imagine. Uh, you, you mentioned Alexander playing the political game. Uh, I have uh, uh, a, a, a proclamation that Benningson posted uh, with the orders of the day uh, by the Tsar, which, which is uh, again, uh, this is a proclamation that comes from sometime in August, uh, which is worthy of Napoleon. <clears throat> Russians, the enemy has left the Dwina River and has shown the intention to give battle to you. 
he accuses you of timidity because he does not know or pretends not to know the politics of your system. Desperate attempts are alone compatible with the enterprise he has put together and the dangers of his situation. But we would we become imprudent and would we lose the advantage of our situation? He wants to go to Moscow? Let him go there. But will he be able, through the temporary possession of this town, conquer the Russian Empire and subjugate a population of 30 million people? Removed from his resources by about 800 miles, he will not, even when becoming victorious, escape the fate of the bellicose Charles XII. Pressed from all sides by our armies, by peasants who have sworn his destruction, who have been rendered furious by his excesses, and who by reason of the difference of religion, customs, and language have become his irreconcilable enemies, how will he manage his retreat? Too far advanced to withdraw with impunity, the enemy will soon have to face the seasons, famine, and the innumerable Russian armies. Soldiers, when the moment to give battle will arrive, your emperor will give you the signal. He will be the eyewitness of your feats and will reward your valor. I mean, Napoleon couldn't have done a better job writing uh, himself than to write something like that. Absolutely. Um, and uh, meanwhile, back in Russia, the uh, Russian army, apparently not very, not very happy itself <laughs> at, the, at their failure to stand and fight. I mean, I can understand that back in these days it was considered an act of valor and honor and glory to stand and fight the enemy, not to retreat, retreat, retreat all of the time. So I think they had uh, there was challenges in the Russian ranks as well uh, at the fact that they kept, um, you know, retreating, running away. And well, that's right. I mean, the, 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 the good news is you're retreating, you're not being killed, but, but people in, in armies in the 19th century really had this sense of, of glory the sense of honor, this this feeling that you were there to fight the enemy. And if, if you're defending your own country, and instead of standing and fighting, and, and even if you lose, making them pay, if instead you keep retreating and, you know, you look at a map and say, gee, you know, they've, they've, they've picked up the western 20% of our country and we haven't done anything about it. Uh, is our czar a coward? Are our generals cowards? Are we just going to let the the the, the French uh, continue to come forward? You know, the average soldier might not realize the the implications of the of the uh, uh, scorched earth policy. They may not realize what what what's going on. They may also not really realize what they're up against. There's no question that. Napoleon would have won any of those battles that almost came to take place. There's no question had the Russians stayed at Smolensk and tried to defend the town. Napoleon with his, you know, by then 400,000 or, or whatever soldiers could have easily surrounded the city, laid siege, uh, wiped them out. Uh, it was a smart move to get out of town, literally. Uh, but the average, the average soldier might not have necessarily, you know, been been really uh, aware of that. So now Napoleon's in Smolensk. He really, really doesn't know what to do. 
you know, he's sitting there. He 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 doesn't want to to go back. He's not really that excited about going forward. His numbers have dwindled decidedly. Okay. He no longer has the 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 kind of army that we've talked about. He's down to somewhere by the time he 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 gets to Borodino, certainly uh, after he leaves uh, Smolensk. He's down to somewhere around 130,000 men and, and, and somewhere around 600 uh, cannon. Uh, he's lost soldiers to the weather, to some of the skirmishes, to desertion. He also, and this is something that everybody needs to understand, you don't just take your entire army and march forward, particularly when you're in enemy territory, which they are. You have to leave people along the route to guard your lines of communication, guard your supply lines, guard your real depots, rear depots. He's left people at these towns we've talked about before uh, to secure them so that he has a place with supplies to go back to. So that takes men, that takes cannon, that takes supplies. Uh, he's got people in flanking operations. The Austrians in particular are, 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 are mostly being used in flanking operations. So we tend to talk about the central core of Napoleon's push forward, but you have to have flanking operations to, to make sure that the enemy doesn't outflank you and get you surrounded in the middle of Western Russia. So in terms of Napoleon's actual fighting force, it's decidedly uh, smaller uh, than, than we tend to think of it as having been. And I think if you look at that wonderful graphic that you put on the website, you'll probably see uh, the, 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 the real effect of, of the, 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 the campaign moving forward. So, you know, Napoleon sits in Smolensk and he, he says, okay, I really need to move forward. But even that's not the last of the, the issues to d determine. The question is, where do you go? There's two cities that you can move against. In some ways, the logical city is St. Petersburg. That's where the government is. That's where the Tsar is. That's where the Tsar's family is. That's where all those damn nobles are. That's the, the heart of the political control of Russia. So go there and, and try to capture the Tsar or whatever. Of course, you're not going to capture the Tsar. Napoleon knows that. The Tsar's going to know you're coming. He's going to leave. And, you know, that will be a, a victory without very much uh, uh, glory. The only real way to defeat the Russians, to force peace, is not to chase the Tsar all over the place, but to catch up to and defeat the main Russian army. So you have to go wherever the army, the Russian army is going to go. The Russian army is withdrawing toward Moscow. There's a straight line right on into Moscow. That's where they're headed. Napoleon knows that Moscow was the, the great holy city of Russia. It has the Kremlin. It has uh, you know, any number of, of, of important Russian sites. It's, the, the, uh, it, it's really the, the, the heart of Russia. 
and the religious center of Russia, the emotional center of Russia. And Napoleon says, listen, that's the direction the army went. There's no way that they will allow me to move into Moscow with, and, and take over the Kremlin without putting up a fight first. Somewhere between Smolensk and Moscow, there will have to be a stand made by the Russians. It was the first time that Napoleon was absolutely correct. Because, in fact, the Tsar could never have survived the political outrage that would have ensued if he had simply allowed Napoleon to march into Moscow unmolested. So as Napoleon moves east down the road to Moscow, he comes across Field Marshal Prince Mikhail Kutuzov, who had now been put in command of the two Russian armies. One of history's most fascinating military characters, a wonderful caricature with his his eye patch and so on, uh, played brilliantly uh, in the two versions of the movie War and Peace. Mikhail uh, Kutusov, who, who you know may or may not have been the finest general that, that, that could have been found, has been given command of around 154,000 men, over 600 cannon, and they're going to entrench themselves uh, near uh, the little town of Majesk, uh not very far from Moscow. So it's 154 against 130, 600 and a quarter or so versus 600 in cannon, and an entrenched defensive structure versus one of history's most brilliant generals on the offense. It's going to be an interesting conflict, this Battle of Borodino, which will take place around 70 miles outside of Moscow. It's going to be very, very interesting to see how that goes. And it will be, Napoleon hopes, the conflict that will tip the balance and finally force peace with the Russians. My turn again. Are you Are you still there? <laughs> yes, I am. Sorry again. I have to keep reaching for this uh, mute button. So uh, Kutuzov, uh, you 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 must take off your you must put your thing on mute so you can sit there and rant and rave about how Markham just won't shut up <laughs> and no one will hear you. No, I just I don't want to have all this banging and stuff going on in the background. You know, um, Kutuzov is an interesting character. I was, yes. I was, you know, he had obviously, uh, he was quite elderly at the time. I think he was in his uh, early 70s at this stage and uh, had been a favourite of Alexander's father, Tsar Paul I. And it, quite interestingly, I read that he wasn't a big fan of the, the Battle of Austerlitz. And in fact, during the eve of the Battle of Austerlitz, when the Allied generals were sort of getting together and planning the battle, Kutuzov was uh, trying to talk them out of it 
and it was overruled by Tsar Alexander. So he feigned sleep, pretended to be asleep during the battle planning so no one could blame him when it all went badly the next day. Well, that's that's very true. They, he, I, I'm not sure about the sleep part. You know, there's there's some dispute on that, I guess. But but there's no question he did not feel that they should give battle, and he also warned against taking the Protestant. He said, "Wait a minute, this doesn't look right." I mean, he was a oh, they call him the old fox, and so on, and and uh, uh, you know, he was he was a fairly fairly good person at reading what was going on, and he opposed Austerlitz and. I'm not so sure he was very happy about Borodino, but he didn't have any choice. Mm. So, are we going to keep going today? We've done an hour and seven minutes. Well, you know, I think that uh, there's an awful lot to be said about what goes on at Borodino, and then right after Borodino, you move you move on into Russia. Uh, I think that uh, this might be a very good place for us to uh, to come to a conclusion. Uh, I'd like to think we could finish uh, the 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 Russian campaign in one more episode. Uh, I don't know that we're going to make any promises along that line, but you, I think that would be a good place to stop. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I think, well, you think we can? No, no, I think the retreat itself is going to... Well, it depends what you mean by the Russian campaign. you, you including the retreat or are you <laughs> you're just talking about getting oh, up sure. to Moscow? Oh, the, tri- the retreat, I reckon there's like three episodes in the retreat. Oh, no, no, no. There's only so much you can say. You want to you rip through it, you think? I, I, <laughs> I, I want to read all well, of we'll uh, Disagur's uh, memoirs, the entire thing. It's an uh, incredibly gruesome exercise. Okay. Well, that's where we're going to leave it today, folks. Uh, Napoleon and his troops are knee-deep in Russia, uh, despite the advice of a lot of people around Napoleon that it's probably not so much a good idea. But, as David said, there were lots of good reasons for Napoleon wanting to make this uh, a quick war. Quick war's a good war, as we always say. Although, I I, I did have some conflicting... uh, data on that somewhere in my book where Napoleon, I think, said to Deval or somebody at one stage that this was going to be a three-year war. But, um, you know, he, I, I, as you've said a couple of times, I think he had a lot of indecision about it. But uh, this is where we've got him. And that's where we're going to leave you today. Next time we're going to come back and talk about pressing on into Moscow. And then if David's correct, we're going to get him all the way back out again. In, we'll see. We'll see. And we're, you're going away, so it might be uh, might be three or four weeks before we resume. Well, it's going to be a while. This is uh, we're doing this on Wednesday, the twenty seventh on of, uh, of of June of two thousand and seven, for the record. Uh, in two days, on Friday, I I leave for uh, a week at a at a conference in northern Poland, a Napoleonic conference in northern Poland. My second conference in a month. I was in Israel last month. Now I'm going to Poland. And then a week of vacation uh, in Germany where we'll see Napoleonic sites in Dresden and Leipzig and and uh, Erfurt uh, and, and probably Jena and, and some other sites having to do uh, with uh, uh, something besides Napoleon, believe it or not. Occasionally we, we see non-Napoleonic sites. Uh, uh, Martin Luther was in the area and, and then we'll see a few things to do with him. So uh, it should be a nice two weeks. I'm guessing the week I get back, I might be a little bit tired, but 
you know, maybe we'll be able to get uh, do something that that week. I get back, I return on the fourteenth of uh, July, like a Tour Juillet uh, Bastille Day, uh, and uh, uh, if if we can do something that that week, then great. Otherwise, the week after for sure. Well, I, I, as you know, I usually like to finish the show with uh, one of Napoleon's letters or one of his bulletins, but. The one that I had actually marked out is after they've arrived in Moscow, and we didn't get that far. So, <laughs> and I've got I've got one right in front of me on my TV screen uh, or my computer screen, rather, uh, uh, the morning of the day of the battle from Napoleon. Uh, you know, soldiers, this is the battle you have longed for. But I will save that, and hopefully remember to do it when we come back. All right. Well, thank you uh, once again, Mr. Markham. Thank you to our uh, lovely audience who are always sending us very nice emails. We really appreciate that you're all tuning in. We're glad you're enjoying it. If you're having half as much fun listening as as we're having making it, then uh, it's all good. And enjoy your summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. Enjoy your winter and uh, floods if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. And (laughs) we we will join you all again uh, sometime in uh, July. (laughs) 